Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Well, welcome back, everybody, with another week, another weekend, a holiday weekend. Hope everybody's got some good things planned this weekend to go out and do something fun. Uh, you know, we all want to have a little fun. It seems like it's harder and harder to find these days, but we all like it. <laughs> if you're on the road, be careful. I don't have to tell you guys out there that, you know, this holiday, particularly Labor Day and Memorial Day, both are tough days. Everybody gets out to travel. A lot of guys are pulling their trailers. Some guys are pulling their boats to get to the lake for the last time or wherever they're going all across uh, Colorado and Utah and all across the nation, really. So, uh, you know, keep your eye on the road. And the other thing is, if you're going a long distance, be aware that sometimes you, you need to stop and take a break. It's easy to get sort of uh, hypnotized by the roadway out there and just keep going until, uh, you know, you're just a little too tired. But other than that, uh, I think it's going to be a good weekend for people. It's the end of the summer, and we're pretty hot a lot of places. Now, you guys could stop that if you'd like to help this, uh, you know, this heat wave we're in uh, by stopping driving your cars. Because I think it's been pretty pretty clear to us by the climate experts that uh, if you would just stop driving your cars, it'd probably get cooler right away. Uh, you know, just pull over the side of the road, get a few more people, and a couple of degrees probably come down. I know that makes about as much sense as uh, some of the other things they say, so, I mean, why not put that out there? Well, on this weekend, I, I wanted to talk about a couple of things that I like to be a little bit different on the weekends, uh, in general, from what you hear during the week. And on holidays, I, I kind of like to have things a little, little different from that. One of the things I wanted to talk about is something I've been hearing from people, and I kind of a little survey on it myself, and that is, uh, what's the news doing to it? I was with a bunch of guys, uh, oh, a bunch of ex-cops and feds out there at an event this uh, this week, and they were uh, talking about, you know, oh, don't watch the news, you know, or don't listen, don't read the paper, you know, they're all joking around about it because it just made you all, all fired up. But, you know, when you get right down to it, they're kind of right. Now, you don't want to live in a, you know, live in a bubble, so you don't know what's going on. We've talked about this before. I've suggested people take a little time out. You know, watch a little gun smoke on some of the old channels if you if you got that or something like that. And uh, heck, I've even suggested you can get a Roku and plug it in your TV and not have to pay and uh, watch Pluto TV and whatnot and get some good old shows. The Dick Van Dyke Show I recommend to people. It always makes me laugh. But, uh, you know, what they were talking about is that just how riled up it gets you. I kind of think that there's a certain amount of manipulation that goes on there for us. I mean, it's not a big surprise, is it? But... As I look at it, I mean, even for the conservatives, it's easier to see on the channels involving the the left because they are perpetually hysterical. That's just their thing. I mean, if, if Donald Trump waves out of a car window, they analyze it, discuss how it was probably a Nazi salute, and uh, that he's probably going to uh, form a, a some kind of Klan meeting at any given moment. I mean, it's just they're just ridiculous. They're just they're hysterical. But they also kind of do the same thing that I was going to talk about, is they, they take the same stories and go over and over and over them. And sometimes they run them for very long periods of time. 
you begin to wonder if that's really news anymore, right? Just because it's uh, shocking or bothers you for some reason, is it, is it really news if it's been a while since it happened? It might be opinion, it might be something to bolster an opinion or discuss a topic in some ways, but is it, is it really, you know, breaking news? When you look at the conservative sites, uh, especially, let's just talk about Fox, uh, they have the breaking news thing that pops up about stories that are, you know, a week old, <laughs> sometimes older than that, uh, or just breaking, or, you know, what, and it, what it really means is we're going to talk about this because we think it's important, or... What they're really saying is they want to talk about it because they think it'll get you riled up and get your eyeballs on it. Because remember, it is a business, and getting your eyeballs on something uh, is how they sell advertising. The more eyeballs, the more they ask for advertising. So if they can keep you watching because you're fascinated by the amount of unhappiness that you're getting out of it, and it is hard to turn away from things like that, then they're going to do it. What I question is this idea that I was sort of started talking out, talking about to begin with, which is that is it really good for you? I don't believe that you should not follow the news and just live, you know, like a hermit. Although sometimes it's not seem like a very bad idea. Uh, although I'm sure the IRS will find you. At any rate, what I think you have to do is know when you've had enough. <laughs> and to me, I like finding. People who have something different to say about the topic of the day or have just something different to say that reflects on the temperature of our time. And that's a lot harder to find, and it's a lot harder to do. Uh, but you find them out there. And I know when I uh, put uh, Victor Davis Hansen stories, well, really, uh, pieces that he writes, I put them on our website at the, the rickwagnershow.com. Uh, along with all kinds of other stories and stuff. And you guys have really been visiting it a lot, by the way, I, I can tell. And uh, I'm really happy for that because I, I want you to be able to do some one-stop shopping of a whole bunch of stories and look at it once you read, not have to go to all kinds of different websites. So I've loaded them all up on that page, and so it makes it a little easier. You can also listen to you know, the podcast from this show, and I also have a connection there to Victor Davis Hansen's uh, podcast that he does three times a week. You know, we throw some stuff up there. And we, we just hope that you get something out of it. But I do notice that you're really hungry for someone that is thoughtful and intelligent and has sort of a historical, philosophical, uh, reasoned approach to something. As opposed to just look at this. Doesn't it upset you? Look at this. Doesn't it upset you? Yeah. yeah. Well, what does it really mean? And you know, what what sort of precedents have we had in the past for whatever it is we're talking about, and where does that let us? And I think those are very interesting things. Maybe it's just me, but you guys seem to be very interested in it too, because I, I know that you think about these things. I think sometimes the people who put these programs together don't think you think all that much about these things. They just see you as totally reactive out there. I also don't think it's good for people to have your adrenaline and cortisol, uh, your stress chemicals, pounding around through your body all the time. Um, and that's what happens. Your anxiety level goes up if you if you don't get away from this stuff. You know, so you got to kind of dive in, get the news you want, and maybe check a couple of times a day, and you feel like you're caught up. And after a while, you start looking at there's certain sites out there that you you visit and you kind of get what's going on. I mean, if I go to the Gateway Pundit, there's going to be stuff on there about voter fraud. You know, that's that's kind of their thing. And then some of the other sites out there, eh, they kind of I, I like them. I always look at them. 
I like Powerline blog, by the way. Uh, I think that's always good to get a good, well-rounded, more of an academic thing that's kind of fun. But some of them have really slipped over this, I would say, this last couple of years into where they're really just kind of a, there's a lot of name-calling, which I don't much care for. You know, um, idiot secretary of state in, you know, some state or something like that. And I, I, I think they're right. I don't disagree with that. <laughs> he probably is an idiot. But I don't want to fall into that same trap, you know, of just constantly uh, working people up. Uh, if you want to get worked up and think he's an idiot, you got to be able to do that from story. They shouldn't have to tell you that in the headline. Of course, the headline's there to try and grab your attention. I think that people, by and large, are a lot smarter than they give you credit for when you do that. If it's a story about something you're interested in, you'll read it and make up your own mind about it. Yeah. Maybe I'm old-fashioned. Uh, and I just think that's important, you know, as we're driving around the holiday and stuff, to uh, to leaven a little bit some of this stuff with to realize that, look, if they're going to be showing you the same film clip of, oh, of our vice president, you know, Kamala, laughing and crack cackling and doing all these things, uh, that's, you know, it's from March or something, yeah, that's okay once in a while, be something, do something funny. But really, is that is that something you need to see all the time? Shouldn't we have some other news? There's a lot of other news out there that is important to us as conservatives. A lot, is go- a lot of these things going on in the world besides that kind of stuff that we need to know about. There's really some international things out there that we need to talk about. There's, you know, I like Gordon Chang when he's on, on China and things like that. Those are things we need to hear about, too. Not just showing things to make us laugh at Kamala. If she does something that day, hey, I want to see it. You know, or if Joe stumbles off the stage and, you know, tries to shake hands with Mr. Lincoln's ghost, I want to see that. But I think we need information and not just being riled up. We'll be back. All right. Thanks for hanging on there, folks. Appreciate that. Moving into our second segment here. I kind of wanted to string some things together that actually were part of one another. And one of the things that I thought I'd talk about after we discussed, you know, kind of kind of understanding the media and what they're trying to do to us out here and uh, understanding that we still get good information. We just have to be particular about how much we absorb and not allow us, allow ourselves to be flogged into a frenzy uh, all the time just to uh, get advertisers uh, pleased. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't be completely upset, worried, and uh, kind of at a loss for our what's happening to our republic. I don't like this thing, our democracy. We have a republic here. I mean, it's the country is a republic. Democracy is a form of government. Our country is a republic. We use a democratic voting system in our republic. So, once again, maybe it's just me. But I thought we'd talk a little bit about how things seem to go in cycles. I was very interested in that. I came across a book that uh, people had read, and... It's a really interesting book. Uh, it's called The Fourth Turning. This was written like 97 by a man named William Strauss. The Fourth Turning, an American Prophecy. Uh, and he says that uh, he believes that history moves in cycles. So do I, kind of. Specifically in cycles roughly to 80 and 100 years. He divided into four turnings, he calls them. The high, the awakening, the unraveling, and the crisis. Each one of these things kind of has its own characteristics, according to him, and lasts between 20 and 25 years. That's uh, the high point is a period of stability and strong institutions, usually the following the revolution after you resolve a crisis. The awakening is a time 
a spiritual renewal and questioning of established values. The third one, which is the unraveling, a phase of deteriorating social order and a weakening of institutions, of established values. Then you have the unraveling, a phase of, uh, that was the unraveling, sorry. <laughs> my, my handwriting is terrible here. Four, the crisis, a time of upheaval where society's problems reach a boiling point and there is a collective effort to rebuild and resolve. According to him, each turning has its corresponding archetypes, generational archetypes, right? Which influence or influenced by the, the ears they grow up. You know, sort of the prophet, the nomad, the hero, and the artist, as you might say. These are sort of like Jungian archetypes. I think he just tosses those in there to say that they sort of are emblematic of kind of what's going on, which is kind of interesting. Um, and he argues that, you know, if you recognize these patterns, you can provide insights into what the future is going to hold, both socially and politically. And they've used this theory, a lot of people have used it to analyze various historical events and make projections about the future. We'll talk a touch more about that and how to, some of the things he pointed out about American history that I thought was interesting. I had a professor at one time uh, in foreign politics, international politics, um, who had a interesting, I think I've talked about it once before, last few years. He had an interesting theory, and he had what he called the funnel of causality. And this was sort of a... Uh, we now, I think we now call it sort of a doom loop, right? But it wasn't quite that uh, that catastrophic. But he just thought that that events had a tendency to have sort of a weight. When certain things happened, they they could be uh, assigned a value, right? A numerical value. He liked to do it, you know, between say one and a hundred, and that you know that these events, when they took place, uh, had a certain weight to them. And we could assign a weight to them by the things that had happened in the past when these events or events like them had taken place. And we could say that, well, sort of when enough of these events uh, that have a certain kind of outcome attached to them from past events take place, then it starts this, uh, he called it a funnel, that these things start spiraling down, gathering momentum, and reaching some sort of impact point that if you look at history and how when a number of these things came together, what usually happened. I thought it was pretty interesting. The problem with it was, like a lot of people in social sciences, they long for what I used to call uh, you know, the dream of physics. Well, physics can ex express everything numerically. I mean, it is mathematics married to the universe. And people envy that because... If you want to know what the frictional coefficient of something is, there's a formula for that, and it will spit out a number, and it's correct. And people want to have that kind of certainty. So they constantly try and attach quantification to their studies. Happens in economics all the time. Economics has some you know, things associated with it that work that are quantified. Usually in macroeconomic theory, you're much able to see that. Money and banking, that works very well with a lot of quantitative analysis. But, you know, when you start getting into microeconomics and individual groups and how they're going to, you know, make choices in economics, it gets really much, much less useful. And it certainly doesn't even do approach the certainty you get with a, uh, you know, an equation, a physics equation, you know, like about the exchange of gases or something to do with the thermodynamics. 
But they all would like to have that. So, I mean, you, you start assigning numerical values to things and start doing calculations about stuff that's really has a lot to do with people, and it starts getting kind of silly. Because you don't really need to do that. The, the theory by itself is enough, right? I mean, it, it's, it's a cookbook, right? It's not a mathematical formula. History is sort of a cookbook. You, put, you see, you get enough of this in there and enough of that in there, and you apply some heat and you let it simmer for a while, and then you throw in something else and uh, it catches fire. <laughs> or, or it comes out and makes a beautiful slice of bread, you know? And that is a, is a little bit more. There's a quantification to it because you could just say, well, how much of it makes an effect, but you can't attach real hard and fast numbers to it. So, if you really do look at history, it does seem to move in cycles. Of course, you know, Marx thought that, but his was a dialectic that he stole from Hegel. Uh, you know, the uh, thesis, synthesis, and uh, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, and that constant wheel that keeps moving along there. Well, what, what Strauss did, I thought, was pretty interesting here. And in the United States, he points out the cycles he, he thought the, the revolutionary cycle, he called it, which was uh, 1704 to 1794. Um, you know, that was, uh, what took place was, you know, the age of empire, us trying to waken ourselves up over here, being a powerful colony. Um, and then, you know, there was the French and Indian Wars. And then we had the American Revolution, and uh, which started the Civil War cycle. I mean, from 1794, we had a great era of, feelings and we're a new country and we're doing all sort of new things and people are optimistic then we had this uh, sort of transcendental awakening almost you know the sort of idea that america should be reaching across uh, from ocean to ocean and everything was possible there and uh, then what happens is well you get the mexican-american war you know war along the border there which starts really a lot of a lot of simmering things going on and then you get uh, people deciding they're in sections of the United States. You start seeing more and more divisiveness in the country that's always existed for a while, but now it's been brought to the fore. And then you end up with the Civil War. And then he says then the next one is what he calls the Great Power Cycle. It was from 1866 to 1946. We had this restoration. I can't read myself. Uh, reconstruction, the Gilded Age, uh, progressive and mis- uh, missionary generation. Um, then you had the Roaring Twenties that fell into the Great Depression. Then you had the crisis of World War II. And now he says that we would be, because he wrote this in 97, in what he called the Millennial Cycle, which is interesting, there's way Millennials out there, uh, where you have the prosperity of course, purse of uh, World War II. I don't know why I can't speak today. Then all this awakening, the 60s and 70s, the counterculture, which is, leads to the unraveling, which is the culture wars of the 80s and 90s. And then this crisis that he thinks would start about 2008, which is interesting since that's the election of Barack Obama. Um, and I rewrote this in 97. There's a little bit of a prophetic uh, piece to it. But when you really look at it, uh, you see these drivers that do take place. And it's a rise and fall kind of thing. Every time certain things about society reach a certain height, be it uh, prosperity or conflict, there's something that that almost always follows it. There's always, of course, there's something that follows, it, but there's always the same kind of thing that follows it, you know. And 
so it makes it interesting to look at uh, history from that perspective. And I think what we're living in now, which is the beginning of the crisis period that took place in 2008, seems to fit just about right. <laughs> now, what this crisis period will end up at, considering he thinks they last 20 to 25 years, and it's a little longer to wait than I would like to see how the resolution is, but it does feel like that, doesn't it? And we all have to sort of be aware that uh, without doing something to understand our surroundings and step into the political arena ourselves, we're not going to be able to shape how these things happen. We're simply going to be uh, victims of them or riders on the storm, if you want to call it that. So when you see these things, you realize it's very important to get involved in things so that as these, these things, good and bad, arise and turn, in his theory, that it's important to be part of it so you can direct the pieces of it to either be as profitable as possible or as least damaging as possible or whatever. And the way you really get left out or get hurt in these is by doing nothing. So uh, it's an interesting theory. I think there's something to it. I think we'll recognize cycles in history. You certainly realize that if you do X and Y, you get Z. Hi, everybody. Thanks for sticking with us around the horn there. I know I let those bumpers play out a little bit sometimes. I, I like the music. <laughs> Makes me feel important because, you know, i got to do something. Anyway, this segment here. Thanks for listening to the last couple of segments. I thought we'd try and discuss some things a little different. Um, of course, this segment I see on my list of things here is going to go from the sublime to the ridiculous. But that's... Uh, and that's how this goes in today's world. By the way, I'm sure someone will ask me because I'll, I'll for, I forgot to mention it. We talked about the the book, this book in the last segment, and I want to you know mention the title again in case someone is interested. It's called The Fourth Turning, an American Prophecy, and it's by William Strauss and Neil Howe, and it was published in 1997. And I'm sure it's available a few places, probably online someplace. But it's a pretty interesting book. It really rounds out a lot of thinking that many of us have about the cyclical nature of history. And that doesn't mean that it's some mystical thing, you know, where history changes by some, you know, obscure mystical set of numbers. It, it's mainly, if you think about it, and it may be off a few years and things like that, but what it's trying to say is that if you study societies, uh, civilizations, that they tend to go through certain phases, and each phase tends to lead to another similar phase, unless there's some big intervening episode, right? An unexpected war, uh, you know, a famine, drought, stuff like that. In general, if you study it long enough, you really do see these cycles uh, that go through these things. You know, there's you know the beginning, and the, we think of it the awakening. I always like that that he, he likes to call it that. And you know, then there's a there's this idea that I think it's difficult to refute that when a society gets comfortable enough, we like to think that we're the most comfortable society, and we are. But it doesn't mean that other societies didn't feel very comfortable uh, in relation to where they were 10 or 15, 20 years ago. So if if you're living in, uh, let's say, Britain, and you're living in the Industrial Revolution, you don't have to look back too many years to see how pretty much everybody, except a very pampered few, were living in much worse conditions than you were now. And so you feel privileged, or at least that your life is more comfortable, and that comfortable life then leads to more free time, 
more ideas about things. That can also lead to greater inventions. It can lead to all sorts of things. But the flip side of that is it also leads to a certain amount of frivolousness. And eventually, if you become more and more comfortable and more and more privileged, then the frivolousness sometimes turns to uh, depravity, or decadence is a better way to put it. And society starts to unravel, which is one of the things that those authors talk about. And as it unravels and things become divisive, things split apart instead of coalesce, then you reach some sort of crisis point. And that crisis point is off as some sort of internal tumult or a weakening of the system in such a way that uh, you have no choice but to uh, do battle, for instance, with an outside invader because they see the weakness, right? And because of that weakness, they take advantage of it. And so there, there's always something that can happen. They don't always have to be the same thing. They just have to be similar things. And we can see that when we go through, through history. And we're going through some of that now. One of the things that I also read like a, a day or so after I was reading this stuff was uh, the stuff about the uh, the birth rates in Western world. I posted this on, actually on the uh, website at the rickwagnershow.com. But they're projecting that the United States is on the same kind of trajectory that Japan has been on, and really a little bit of the trajectory that China is on too, where the fertility rate, in other words, the births versus deaths, is becoming problematic. In the 1950s and 1960s, I think, that families were having three to four children. Now in the United States, we're approaching 1.6 for family or for, you know, individual giving birth. We call them women here. And that's a huge change. So the birth rate starts dropping. Japan has been dropping even faster. Japan has a real problem with an aging population and a smaller workforce. China is reaching that sort of sort of cliff too, except for the fact that China is having trouble generating jobs. The Chinese economy is not doing nearly as well as people thought it should or would. We're trying to bet on that. And they are job shy right now. Of course, a lot of it has to do with their ridiculous response to COVID, despite where it came from. And their lockdown procedures and the sort of draconian way they dealt with everything. I mean, we think it's draconian here, which it was. But the next step up is Australia, you know, where they were uh, arresting people who were going outside from their apartments to sit on a bench by themselves. Now, we saw things like that in the United States where, you know, people were hauled out of, uh, you know, hauled out of Little League games and so forth because they didn't have a mask on and arrested. I mean, that was bad enough. But then you get to China where they're, literally welding people's door shuts into their houses to keep people inside, that gets a little bit more problematic. And, of course, that all contributes to uh, a loss of jobs, and it does not help your fertility rate uh, when nobody thinks there's employment out there. So they've also been going down. Plus, they're still uh, suffering from the effects of their one-child policy and all these kinds of things. Because not only did their one-child policy create an endlessly deficit population at some point. They thought they were going to overpopulate, and they ended up at some point cresting and going downhill pretty fast. But the one-child policy resulted in a lot of males because the Chinese were still of a mind that, you know, males were more productive in a lot of what they're doing in agricultural work or something like that was their idea, 
we know better. And so they ended up with a lot more males and females, and there's just an endless amount of problems there. But Japan is is really leading the edge in this. I mean, their population is plummeting over there in a in a sense in terms of uh, you know new replacement workers and young individuals, and we're kind of getting right behind them. But this is a common common thing, isn't it? There's just too little emphasis on work, <laughs> an ethic that everybody needs to work. There's work to be done. You need people to do the work. We've sort of. Uh, lost that. That's sort of become kind of shadowy to many people. I mean, how many times do you have to read about things like quiet quitting and all that kind of nonsense, right? So you see where we're headed with that. But it's interesting that when, when people reach these certain levels of prosperity in civilizations really throughout recorded history, things start deconstructing or becoming problematic in pretty much the same way. And there's also always more than a whiff of decadence in this, right? There is the kinds of things that, you know, we see today. We all know what they are. They're not unknown. A lot of this stuff was known in the Roman Empire, was going on, you know, in the British Empire, you know, with uh, a little more under the, under the, uh, out of sight, perhaps is a better way to put it. If you look at what happened in the French Revolution with the attitudes of the aristocrats and the kind of behavior they engaged in, all this stuff sort of builds up. And it has kind of the same cycle. So that makes it very interesting to see. But we are in a trouble with our um, replacement rate for people in the United States. we have to see how that turns out. There's just too many people not having children. And we're on a track now to where one-third of uh, the women in the United States may end up not ever having children. And that's a pretty low number for this country, for any country, really. It's not a good sign. So moving on from there, I'm looking at my notes here. This is not the greatest transition, I suppose, but I had some notes here, especially people who are listening here in Colorado, where I'm at, because, you know, we were the weed sort of forerunner, right? We were the weed leader and recreational marijuana and all this kind of stuff. So uh, I'm always interested in these stories. And a story that came out this week, and I posted it on the website because it is interesting, the recreational weed industry, quote, verges on collapse, due to steep taxes, plunging prices, glut of competition, and thriving illicit pot market. Okay. Prices have plunged as dispensaries complain of high taxes and red tape. Wow. That was, that's practically impossible to have predicted when you have government regulating something, isn't it? Who would have thought that was what was happening? That they would try and tax everything to the point where it became un- improfitable, unprofitable, and then... uh Binds you up in red, red tape to get any kind of licensing stuff. There is something for my Colorado friends out here that I'm sure they're proud of is that the city with the highest number of recreational weed dispensaries is Denver, Colorado with 319. And that includes counting places like Los Angeles and San Francisco. So congratulations, Denver. Yes, sir. I can see that's really increased everybody's enjoyment of life over there. You betcha. And as we all know, in the early days of the of the real influx of transients into the state, particularly in the Denver metro area, there was plenty of anecdotal evidence of them saying, that, you know, pot was legal here. They liked it. Good idea. I mean, how how tough is that really to predict? I mean, I, I don't think you have to be some sort of savant to come up with that, do you? So that's what's happening now. It's just too expensive to be in the weed industry. And they've made, and we've talked about this many times before, and and. I, I argued this before we ever legalized it because I could see it when I used to do narcotics prosecutions and so forth that you cannot compete 
with government taxation very high at all with the illicit trade. And that once you make marijuana, the substance itself, legal to possess, then you just really cut off any availability to have any enforcement, even if you've legalized it for Colorado. You're not going to put, like, uh, trackers in legal weed so that you can tell it from illegal weed. So if you pull it out of somebody's pocket, you know, oh, you didn't buy this from a dispensary. Really? You know, uh, I guess they could make it so you had to carry around a bill of sale uh, for that weed. I mean, that might be something that would be helpful with it, but they're they're not. Our illicit growth and trade, if you want to call it, in marijuana in Colorado, I don't believe has been significantly impacted by the recreational uh, introduction. I think it has just led to more people doing it, and the illicit trade continues to thrive because they can always sell it cheaper. And now, once it leaves their hands, no problem. You know, it's it's sort of like not having a sales license, right? So uh, there's there's little downside to it. I don't know what they were thinking, how that wasn't going to work. I mean, the only way that's going to work, if you just look at economics of it, is to encourage people to go to the legal pot because there's some better idea. It's more, it's safer or it's this or it's that. And the price is not so high that you pass people's substitutionality curve, right? Because that's part of your microeconomics. I hate to say that, but it's macro too. That at, at some price point, people will substitute something else for this particular product. And if the legal product that supposedly maybe is cleaner or who, whatever you want to say, becomes too high, there's a point where they're happy to trade that extra knowledge they may get from buying their weed from somebody who's licensed by the state versus uh, someone who's standing on a street corner like, Psst, come here, I got some for you. So there's a number in there. There's a gap in there where people start substituting those things, and they've blown way past that with the kind of money they're charging. So, But don't complain about it, apparently, because uh, I also have this... Uh, story that I read where the government is now going to start using AI to uh, monitor your sentiment and emotion Ooh. in social media posts. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, it doesn't take a really sophisticated AI to do that, by the way. I mean, what they look for, it's sort of like these language models we see or or just like dictation software. Like I use sometimes at work and physicians use all the time, the drag and medical speaking and this and that. Uh, it, what it does is it looks for common connections between certain words and this and that so it can interpret the sounds you make. Well, you can kind of tweak that a little bit and use even that, that technology to say, look, if you got two or three of these words within a certain space of each other, this, they're usually trying to say X, Y, or Z, right? So you can do that. So it's not even that sophisticated. It's just the idea that they'll turn it loose on social media. To what end? I mean, I guess I could make the argument, say, is this different than somebody at a federal agency reading the newspapers to see if there's nutty letters to the editor in there and trying to figure out if that guy ought to be watched versus this? It's kind of the same. But the problem is they shouldn't be doing that anyway. And this, the idea that the social media people will let them in to do that is a continuing problem. But I thought that was a scary and not altogether unexpected story, right? Um, it it just it bothers me to think about them doing that. I mean, I actually read about some video game companies now 
Because, you know, one of the big things with video game kids, uh, or adults, you know, there's quite a lot of gamers out there of all ages, is they want to play online. They don't want to play a video game where it's just them playing against the computer, which, you know, I, I think is plenty of fun. But now they want to get in fights with other people, and they want to have their own groups. Some would call them gangs, and this and that. And then we wonder why these kids get pretty unempathetic uh, about shooting things and uh, destruction because they play online constantly and they're with each other and they egg each other on. Uh, but they enjoy that, too. Well, they worry about hate speech, which, of course, when it's the government, it's any speech that they disagree with. But they think that people get too rowdy and name-calling and this and that, and they want to make sure that there's there's no name-calling or there there's no uh, racism or, you know, the whole nine yards. So they're going to start putting AI on their uh, chat so that there'll be a uh, AI robot, as it were, uh, monitoring the chat. And if the chat becomes aggress- too aggressive or too this or too that, I guess they'll stop it or cut it in, cut in on it or whatever, or get rid of the, the user if they won't stop. Which seems kind of okay, but then once again, who's going to make the rules? Who's going to decide these things are, quote, hate speech or violent or whatever? I mean, we hear things all the time now that just having a different opinion about some of these issues is now being called violent. Or that if you don't want something to happen, and I see this now with this transgender movement in schools, where if school boards don't want to have a policy that parents are not informed of things like a child's decision to be called a different name or wanting to trade genders or, you know, wearing different clothes to school that the parents don't know about. Who knows what that is? Uh, they don't want that to happen with the parents to be informed. Well, the protesters come out, and if you ever read their signs and listen to what they're saying, it isn't just because they're upset about it at some level, which is odd enough, but they think it's somehow violence. Well, you, these these kids are in danger now. These parents, uh, they'll, they'll turn on the kids and who knows what they'll do to them. I mean, it's really, it's weird and it's unfortunate they think that, but they do. At least if you look at their displays and what they're saying, and they certainly are howling it loudly enough to where you may think there's something going on with them. Uh, that, so they have themselves so worked up and convince themselves of this. And our politicians are happy to fan that flame because they think that makes them get these people to attract to them. Oh, yeah, I'm on your side on this, too. Yeah, these parents, man. Whew, man, who knows what they're going to do? You know, they they shouldn't be making these decisions. This should be made by the 8-year-old. And then uh, the, the state should step in and protect his decision. Really? How many things did the state not protect the decision? You know, get your 8-year-old and he wants to get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, maybe a cigarette, and then take a, you know, take a drive in the car in the country. Uh, those are decisions we don't like. I think it's a good idea to leave to the child and that the government should be supporting his decision-making in. But we can, apparently, as a society, think that having the child, you know, decide to trade his gender or talk about it or make moves in that direction based on a lot of weird media stuff out there and strange things that are going on in schools and this sort of uh, attitude that you're unhappy, that it may be because you're in the wrong body, all these kinds of things that are really crazy answers to questions kids have had forever and almost always grow out of, um, that is something government should protect that decision on that young child and, uh, you know, a 12-year-old or 14-year-old or whatever the case may be where you're making a lot of crazy decisions and need real guidance. 
that the government should somehow be involved in that, right? And the school, which is the government, right? Used to be the actual parents that were involved in the school, but that's apparently, you know, passe. And so the government is supposed to protect those decisions. And what kind of sense does that make when you, when you t- think about that? And why don't we just let the kids, if you're 12 year old, make all kinds of decisions that we don't let them make? Eh, drinking, signing up for the military, driving, you know, my, uh, buying firearms. If you're going to, this is an important decision that they're trying to get behind that parents should be allowed to know about and have some guidance with their own children. But at the same time, they're going to stop them from doing these other things, which I think is wise in some of these instances. But, you know, there's no internal logic to it. So it's, it is a little bit, like I said, in this segment, we were going from the, you know, from the sublime talking about history and the movement of mass cultures and how things repeat themselves in history because of certain things that arise within societies and civilizations. And then we go to people who think that students uh, who are 12 years old should be able to keep very serious things that they're considering doing or discussing at school from their parents and have the support of the government in that. So if you think that's all right, and I know you guys don't, uh, then you'll be happy with most of these school boards uh, in California and places. In Colorado, they're working pretty hard to get school boards in place to have different ideas about that. Here in Mesa County, where I'm at, they're trying very hard. We have some people on there now that have really, really worked towards that and have taken a lot of flack. This is something, I mean, you're on a school board or something, you're not going to get paid. And to just be relentlessly pilloried uh, by you know, usually whack jobs, I might add, or often professional protesters, <laughs> uh, is sometimes not worth the job, right? Well, in Colorado, it's not as crazy because remember in Colorado, and I, many of you saw this story, uh, this was actually a national story. I hate it when Colorado makes these national stories. They're never good. Uh, we had a Democrat legislative member, uh, retire or remove themselves from the legislature because they won a seat in the Denver City Council. There you go. And so they had to replace it. The Colorado Democrats were able to name a replacement for that person uh, in the legislature. So, of course, they picked someone who was, you know, had some experience and, you know, probably, you know, a little left when leaning, but probably somebody that had something going on. Well, that would be a mistake to think that. Uh, they appoint a person who's a, apparently a self-defense Marxist who called for forceful cultural revolution. This is from a, this is, I think this is from Breitbart. Uh, forceful cultural revolution against whiteness in, uh, they point them to the state legislature. And there's a quote in here that I'm assuming is correct and we can check that out. But, uh, if white people spent half of the time they spend trying to distance themselves from their whiteness and instead spend it actually deconstructing systems of white supremacy, where would we be? Yeah, thank you for putting them in the legislature. Got to watch this all the time, folks. Hey, have a good weekend. Have a great uh, vacation period. Be careful on the highways out there. We'll talk to you next week.